Greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the best damn move related show on the planet at the John Campy Show. Coming from right here on my YouTube channel, brought to you in part by our friends at Mint Mobile. I am, of course, your host, John Campia, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming, and all sorts of good stuff. You can't see it, but things are falling apart behind the scenes right now. Uh, joining me today over here, we've got Robert Meyer Burnett. Sitting back there is Ray Aura. Of course, we've also got Taylor. In front of Taylor, we got Jonathan running the show, and of course, Chris Carr is here. And most importantly... You guys are here. Thank you for being here, making this show part of your day. And here's how today's show is going to go. We're going to break it into two parts. In the first half of the show, we're going to talk about some predetermined topics. Then in the second half of the show, we're going to take your live comments and questions. If you guys have a comment or question you'd like us to address in the show, when we get to the end of the main topics, we'll announce that we're opening up the Super Chats. And we are doing Super Chats today because we don't have an open mic later. It is, of course... Weekly Hero Day. Yeah. We'll have Weekly Hero later. But when we get to the end of the main topics, we'll announce that we're opening up the Super Chats. You'll have just a couple of minutes to fire in some questions, and we will address those in the second half of the show. All right, guys, listen, we got like 10 issues to talk about here today. So let's not waste any time. Jump into it. We're going to start with this. You know, one of the questions that's been floating around a lot lately has been, and we've seen, you guys have watched the show, you've seen people write this question in. Do you think James Gunn will bring over some of his Guardians of the Galaxy cast to DC, to which we often try to explain to people, you don't need to bring anybody over. Actors do not belong to DC or Marvel. They are free to move back and forth. They can do whatever they want. Uh, but still, a lot of people wondering, with James Gunn having done stuff over there in Marvel for a while, do we think he could do something with people he worked with in Marvel over in DC? Well, somebody on Twitter wrote to James Gunn, of course, James Gunn is very active in responding to people, and wrote to James Gunn and said the following, please do not encourage Guardians of the Galaxy cast to follow you to the DCU. Find fresh actors that can bring brilliant characters and forge new memories for audiences instead of swimming in the same muddy pond. I know I am not alone in feeling this way. Well, you're mostly alone. Uh, rebirth, not reissue, please. Okay, so James Gunn, let's bring up that page, Jonathan. I have the tweet. You want the tweet or... Uh, no, just right there. That's good. That's it's the same one. Okay. And so James Gunn responded and he said the following. We have hundreds of roles to cast. I've always done. Some will be, as I've always done, some will be brand new faces. Some will be actors I've worked with before. Uh, some will be actors, you know, I've never worked with. What matters most is the actor fits the role and that they're easy to work with. All right. So. I, I don't understand this question at all because whenever Tim Burton worked with Johnny Depp again, nobody went, oh, you're working with Johnny Depp again? When when Martin Scorsese works with Leonardo DiCaprio, nobody goes, ah, bring fresh talent. Why, why work with him again? Like, directors, look, this is a, a business. This is a job. And when you, whatever job you're in, when you have coworkers or people that you work with that you enjoy working with, it's easy to work with and you have great results together. And especially in the director actor relationship, if you guys, if you find that you're able to create a shorthand with each other, you know exactly what each other wants and you know how to bring the best out of each other. Why on earth would a director not or a producer or a studio head in this case, why on earth wouldn't you be open to working with people you already know you work well with? 
But I also love the fact that James Gunn throws in that little caveat. Most important thing is finding an actor that fits the role. That's the key. Actor that fits the role. But that could be somebody I've worked with. Maybe it'll be somebody completely brand new. And by the way, any actor they get to play any role has played something. So is that muddying the waters? Because, oh, that actor played something once before. So look, to me, what James Gunn just said makes perfect sense. You know, saying that I'll work with actors I've worked with before. He's worked with a lot of them. I'll work with actors I haven't worked with. It's just all about finding the right fit. Anyway, Rob, uh, you read this and saw James Gunn's response to this. What do you think? Well, you know, it's it's really a shame that that uh, somebody said you can't make Chris Evans Captain America. He's only he's already played Johnny Storm. Yeah, don't muddy the water. Yeah, you can't do that. I mean, I I don't understand. Uh, look, on one hand, I do understand the underlying idea behind this, in, in that people want want the idea of having fresh something new and fresh is great, and I get that. I think that's a a, a right. Um, inclination but on the other hand how many actors like you astutely pointed out when an actor has somebody or a director has somebody they like working with like Leonardo DiCaprio that's worked out pretty well Uh, The Departed won the best picture but you know then again he was also played Howard Hughes in The Aviator would you not want those things and Robert De Niro uh, I'm sure I really am happy that Martin Scorsese said you know what I'm not going to have Leonardo DiCaprio played Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street because I already had him in The Departed and The Aviator. Right. But I understand the thing is superheroes become, I think superheroes are a little different in the sense that super, one genre, you know, and how, I, what, what if I, I can't mix and match my action figures if they're played by the same actor? <laughs> you know, I can't do that. I can't stand them right next to each that other. That seems like solid reasoning. I yeah, think it that is. That seems like totally I solid think it reasoning. Is, John. No, but I, I look. <laughs> I think, like we were talking the other day, if Chris Pratt wanted to play Booster Gold, and I'm not saying there's going to be a Booster Gold movie, that's great casting. I would get excited to see Chris Pratt come to the DC universe and play a character like Booster Gold. That would be comedy gold, and I think that would be fun. Plus, if you look at Chris Pratt, whether you like the movies or not, the Jurassic World movies and the Guardians of the Galaxy movies have made him a worldwide box office draw. Any smart studio executive is going to be like, yeah, I want to cast Chris Pratt. You think you don't want to... I, I, I want to see Michael Rooker in another movie. I don't care what he plays. I, by the way, I was thinking about this earlier this morning. Now, it, it would be a little bit of a change. Michael Rooker as Commissioner Gordon. I Dude. Just, I'm just throwing that out into the universe. Just want to throw that out into the universe. Or Michael Rooker grizzled, as, grizzled as Perry White. As Perry White. I could see him as a grizzled cop. I know. Though, you know? But, but a Perry White would be, a, be good, you know, too. I'd love him as Perry White. A cigar yeah, he could be a cool Perry White. You know, uh, Kent... <laughs> what you doing, boy? Yeah, I mean <laughs> the way he would well, say it. Because you know, Lois and Clark had—I can't remember that actor's name—but that lovely kind of like Southern fried style to, to mm-hmm. Perry, which was lovely. When he'd just be like, "Damn it, Lane!" Oh, it was great. <laughs> but, I mean, that's—it could be good. So I, yeah, I mean, the funny thing about James Gunn is the pool of actors he will have access to is exciting because he's worked with so many different kinds of people, and people really like him. Chris, you uh, you see James Gunn's. I think it's a very balanced, common sense kind of response. But what do you yeah. take away from it? I mean, uh, back in 2014, when he was promoting Guardians, people kept asking, why do you always work with Michael Rooker? He's like, well, I think on set you should have some affection for the people who are there. You have long days. You have to have a shorthand with one another. And also Michael Rooker is a madman, and I like working with mad people. <laughs> and I think that's a really big key thing here is when you're on set, you need to develop a shorthand with your actors so that you can connect and make your shots matter. Time is money. 
money is power. You got to get throughout your day quickly. You know, post-production um, has to get started on all of these big After Effects things. You got to work within a specific timeline to make sure you can meet all your deadlines and you don't do more than a 12-hour day because then you lose money. So you need to work with people who you trust, who can do what you need. And he also is spending all of his time on set. He's going to want to be around people he can tolerate, not just people who are immensely talented, but he knows who these people are. He knows how they work. He knows he can get the best out of them in a certain way. Right. And I think, too, he also allows his actors to do so many things that they wouldn't be cast as otherwise. Michael Rooker really comes to mind. He's done, what, five or six collaborations with him at this point? And he's played a whole bunch of different characters that I think have really, really had let Michael just play in the sandbox in a multitude of ways. All right, guys, question is for you. What do you think about this? James Gunn kind of saying what I, I think makes common sense. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to work with some actors I've worked with before. I'm going to work with some actors I've never worked with before. It's just the important thing is finding the right fit. And if that happens to be an actor he's worked with before, great. What do you make of it? Do you take something else out of his comments that maybe we missed? Whatever you think, jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, let's get on to another off the top here, shall we? And that one is this. All right, right now, The Last of Us is becoming a phenom. We already saw, saw that it was like the largest debut for a new ep- for a new series, for HBO, for for an original show for ages. All that kind of stuff. The numbers are doing good. Well, The Last of Us Episode 2 just broke an all-time HBO viewership mark as Episode 2 had the largest gain of viewers from Episode 1 to Episode 2 of any HBO series in history going up by 22%. Wow. This comes to us from Screen Rant. Who writes the following? Uh, The Last of Us continues to grow in popularity as episode two, Infected, yields a massive increase in viewership from last week's series premiere. HBO's hugely anticipated adaptation of the beloved PlayStation game of the same name has received widespread acclaim, so on and so forth. In a recent Nielsen report via Variety, documents the very impressive debut ratings that The Last of Us generated in its first episode. When You're Lost in the Darkness, which opened to 4.7 million viewers in the U.S. across HBO and linear telecasts. The report has revealed a whopping episode two jump of 22% with a total of 5.7 million viewers, the largest ever increase for an HBO original drama series between its first and second episodes. So a couple things to take away here from this. Number one, clearly everybody loves this show because that means everybody came back and they bought they brought 22% more people along with them because of the word of mouth. Everybody's come back to watch it again and they've told people about it and they're coming on to watch again and you're only going to see the viewership go up. We're only going to watch it go up as long as the quality stays and I I haven't seen the rest of the show so I don't know if the quality stays high or not. I'm going to guess that it does. You're only see the numbers climb. So that's one huge takeaway. And I know I come back to this all the time and I sound like a broken record, but I don't care. Netflix, are you paying attention? See what happens when you go week after week and you allow a word of mouth to build and you let audiences, new audiences jump on board without feeling like they're already behind everybody else too much. This is what kind of thing that can happen at any rate. Couldn't happen to a better show. I was thrilled to see these numbers. Anyway, Chris, you see this breaks an all time HBO record. Biggest increase from a week one to week two. What's your takeaway? People are talking about it. HBO always, always delivers on their shows. They do such a great job. The same way that we're not going to bet against James Cameron, we don't bet against HBO. 
All right. They know what they're doing. And this team they have behind it is so great. I feel like this is also just a really great water cooler show. You want to talk about your theories. You want to talk about what's happening. You want to talk about where this could go, whether or not you've played the game before or you're totally new to the franchise. There's a lot to say about this show. There's a lot of other things surrounding it, the after show, the podcast and everything, too, that I think if you want to be able to jump into, you know, that conversation at your lunch break at work, you need to be watching this. Rob, you see the numbers, huge increase on HBO Max. What's your takeaway? Well, I think that like the game itself, it captured an audience that didn't know what it was. You know, if you've heard about Last of Us but didn't quite know, I mean, it's not surprising to me because look at The Walking Dead. That's been a huge hit. This whole post-apocalyptic, quote-unquote, zombie survival epic. The thing about Last of Us is it delivers a great story. Again, just like the game, it's it's emotional, it's personal. It's not just zombies are running around. It's it's a it's a man and his his daughter, you know, and it connects with people on that emotional level more so than I think something like Walking Dead has done, especially in its latter seasons, because it was always more the same. This also has a quest. There's a quest here. They're on they're on a quest. They're going to go find something. So it's not like. It, it, it has, presumably, for those of you who don't know, it does have an ending. It does have a place where it is going. And I think that everything about the show makes it really desirable. It makes for very compelling television. I mean, we're already at the end of episode three. We're going to be 30, 33% of the way through the series already. And, uh, John, it, that's a depressing thought. <laughs> it, well, you know, they'll do season two, but they've knocked it out of the park, man. I mean, for me, it was if all they showed us was that three five minute opening with that doctor in in uh, Jakarta, I'd be like, "That was great." I would have felt that would have been a satisfying episode of the yeah, you know, and just leave it at that. Boom! I mean, come on. All right, guys. Question is for you: What do you think of these numbers? It's it's never a small thing when you set like any kind of record, and for HBO, which has the history of television, it does. To have the biggest growth between a episode one and episode two with these types of numbers is impressive. What do you attribute this growth to? The show is obviously excellent. People are talking about it. How high do you think this viewership can go? Can it get into Game of Thrones kind of numbers? Who knows? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. But whatever you guys think, jump down to the comment section below and leave your thoughts there. All right, guys. With that down, let's get on to another off the top here, shall we? And that is this. You know... During the pandemic, when that happened, for obvious reasons, streaming really exploded. We saw numbers go up across the board with all the streaming services, some more than other, because everybody was stuck at home. And it kind of created delusions of grandeur, I think, for a lot of things. And this is the way it's always going to be. Well, not really. Uh, As we've seen in the last six months to a year, the rate of growth on streaming has slowed. Netflix has lost tens of billions of dollars with their stock drop and all that kind of their valuation going down. Disney, even Disney Plus has had struggles with really dismal kind of earnings reports and things like this. Well, Disney still had put out these big projections about where their streaming numbers are going to go. Well, according to a new report, it sounds like Disney is about to walk back those predictions. As story is now saying that analysts expect Disney to back off streaming subscriber target numbers. Now, this comes us from uh, Next TV that writes the following. The Walt Disney Company will bite the bullet and back off from its aggressive subscriber growth targets 
uh, on once and future CEO Bob Iger's first earnings call since returning to the company. Wells Fargo analyst Steve Callahan predicts Iger will try to balance Wall Street's disappointment over the lower subscriber target with cost cutting at the company's money losing direct to consumer business. Cahal said the move will please investors by moving up when Disney Plus and the rest of the company's streaming portfolio will move into the black. All right. So basically, according to this report, they're saying, well, number one, they're reemphasizing Disney Plus is a money loser, which nobody panic. Remember back when Disney was launching, we said these things are by design. They're going to be money losers for the first X number of years that they run. It's a matter of having to get through that gulag to get to the other side when it's profitable. So no panic. But right now, Disney Plus is a money losing venture, but their targets have been unrealistic. The growth has not been what they thought it would be, particularly coming out of the pandemic. And at this point, they have to kind of be realistic instead of keeping those target numbers. And then when the actual deadlines come and they don't come anywhere near those numbers, we know what happened. We've seen this song and dance before, right? What happens with Netflix, it happens with other, the, the stocks drop and investors get unsettled. So it sounds like Bob Iger, Big Papa I, is going to get in front of this thing and say, look, the target numbers were unrealistic for the next couple of years that was set by my predecessor. We're going to back this up a little bit. We're going to lower the, We still have target numbers. We still want to grow, but we need to back off those. Look, it's, there's no way around it. This is a bad day. If you're a Disney plus exec, this is a bad day, but it's a move that they had to make. I, I don't know, Rob, how do you see this? Well, like you pointed out, I mean, <laughs> these streaming numbers were always what they were going to be. And everybody gets, too enthusiastic, but reality has to set in at some point in time. And also, John, we're seeing the fact that there's only a certain amount of households in the world. It's a finite number. And yeah, it's, it increases some places. But for the most part, all the streamers are competing to get the same household dollars. And not everybody can get every streaming service. So this idea that that there is all these gettable households out there, especially Disney Plus, doesn't offer... You know, last night... I had to watch the new season or the first season of Bling Empire in New York. And when I went on to Netflix to find Bling Empire. Is that Empire one of your 24-hour um, reviews? <laughs> like Velma and the others? Yeah, of course. It was. But there's so much on. Like on Netflix, I'm like, what? I, as soon as the screen came up and I'm looking, I, I'm like, what What am I here to watch? I don't even remember. And, and in a way, st- streaming is giving us a lot of things but then nothing. And I was just annoyed and I never went and watched bling empire, New York. I turned it off. So I have no idea if it was good or not, but the thing (laughs) is, the thing is, um, you know, Disney plus doesn't have enough and they're a streaming service. The reason I think that they're not exploding because if you don't have a family, if you don't have kids, there's not a lot of diversity of programming on there. Like Netflix has foreign films. It's got documentaries. It's got things from all over the world. Now, Disney Plus is great and focused, but they can't expect massive subscriber growth because the subscribers that they were going for, they pretty much already have. I mean, how do you get more people? How do you entice people that already have what they wanted out of Disney? How do you get people that don't have Disney Plus to come get Disney Plus? Chris, what do you think about this? 
I mean, it makes sense that they've seen these drops. We've seen other competitors like Netflix who had a glass onion, you know, had a lot of different uh, holiday release releases do well over the holiday period. But I'm sure those numbers are going to dwindle. And Netflix obviously has had a lot of issues as well. But Disney, I think, to Rob's point, they have a market that they can focus on very much so because for people like me, millennials, this is exactly what you want. A lovely mix of nostalgia and a lot of the stories that you enjoy being told too. I think they need to really push their marketing towards that because a lot of times too, and we've seen this with a lot of folks at Disney when they focus on making it quote unquote family friendly. Look, a family's whatever you make it. It doesn't mean you have to have kids. I'm a family of two in my household, right? <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that I want to watch that includes animation, that includes children's fair, right? A lot of my classic cartoons that I grew up with. And then a lot of these fun Star Wars things as well. I think if they continue to expand what it means to have a property under the house of mouse, they can do really, really well here. They constantly shoot themselves in the foot by saying, no, Disney can only be this. And that is one of the things that I think Bob Iger really suffers from as much as I love Iger is that these things don't have to be all squeaky clean. We can have some fun in here too and we can diversify the portfolio. See, I liked the initial strategy which was have the family friendly uh, stuff on Disney Plus and create have Hulu there on the side for a lot of this edgier, more adult content. I, I always liked the idea of that Divert, but it, it doesn't look like Hulu. I mean, there's a lot of talk in Wall Street right now that Disney may, may be looking to divest itself of Hulu um, and ESPN and a lot of different changes. So I don't know what the strategy is going to be at that point. What I think everybody is underestimated is how much it costs to operate one of these streaming services. Yeah. That's where everybody under they just think, oh, they should upload to the cloud and it's free. We went through this on a Campia classroom once. It is lit every year. It costs in the double digits of billions to run one of these things and make making even ain't easy. Anyway, guys, question is for you. Sounds like Disney Plus is going to have to back off its projection numbers. They're acknowledging that the growth is slowing down right now. How do you think about that? Do you think it's a big deal? No big deal. Whatever you think, jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down. Let's do one more off the top here, shall we? And that one is this. You know, one of my favorite, I'd say my third favorite DCU film is Shazam. Uh, after Man of Steel and then James Gunn's Suicide Squad, I think Man, I think Shazam is my favorite uh, DC film. I, I absolutely, DCU film. I love that movie more than most people do. I acknowledge that, but I, I saw it. I lost count of how many times me and Anne went to go see it in theaters. Just had a delightfully fun time with it. And so I'm really excited about Shazam 2. My excitement, of course, has been tempered a bit by the fact that the trailers have not been all that good. They've been okay. Mm. They've been they've had some cute moments. They have a couple of moments that I think are quite good. But overall, there's nothing about the ad campaign that they've done so far that has made that has upped my enthusiasm and excitement for Shazam, right? My excitement and enthusiasm for Shazam right now is completely based on the fact that I love the first one because the marketing hasn't done it. Well, their marketing, hopefully, is about to be kicked into another gear. As of today, they have released a brand new poster for Shazam Fury of the Gods uh, that has now come out, which we can see here. Um, and you know what? It's it's a nice little poster. It's it's a nice little poster. I'm not, this is, I mean, conceptually, it doesn't, you know, jump off the page. It's not horrendously original, but it's a it's an attractive, good-looking poster. So I'm fine with it. Again, like a lot of the trailers, it ain't upping my excitement for it, but it is what it is. You know what posters I really like? I, we've talked about this before, Rob. I like posters that 
in one single image captures the kind of spirit and DNA of the movie. Yep. You know, Sixth Sense was great. Shawshank Redemption's poster, not the one with all the floating heads, but the one of Andy Frayne on his knees yeah. in the rain, talking about hope. <clears throat> like, yeah, they're conceptual, they're not human pyramids. Yeah, when they take one frame that kind of tells you the spirit of the movie, these, listen, these ones are, there's a reason they use these types of posters. But because the design of this poster is a little lackluster. It's, the, it's all I right. Mean, I mean, from a design standpoint. Yeah, but it's it's eye-catching. Uh, it's colorful. People will look at this and instantly be able to identify and know exactly what they're getting. I get it. From a, from a pure analytics and marketing point of view and, and case studies, I get it. But not the best poster. It's fine. But with this poster releasing... We now know, pardon me, there is a brand new Shazam 2 trailer coming out tomorrow. And I would say this is the most important trailer they've done so far. Because look, as much as I love the first Shazam movie, it's lucky if it broke even. Okay? Because it, it was not a blockbuster by any stretch of the imagination. It did roughly, you can look this up for me, Taylor, but I think it roughly made Black Adam numbers. Yeah. So, I mean, now granted, it didn't have Dwayne The Rock Johnson in it, but still, they'll be lucky if they broke even. So, the first couple of trailers, while they've had their moments, and they're fine, they have not upped anybody's excitement, I don't think. This third trailer is absolutely key. What numbers did we get there, Taylor? Uh, so, the first Shazam did $365 million. And what did Black Adam do? Three ninety or something like that? I can check that. Anyway, it, so they're, they're roughly were equivalent. So this new trailer dropping tomorrow, again, the poster's perfectly good. This new tra trailer dropping tomorrow, though, I think is vital to the opening weekend success of Shazam. Absolutely vital. Now, after the opening weekend, it's all about how good the movie is. But for that first opening weekend, this trailer is key and pivotal, and it's, it's got to do something. It doesn't have to blow us away, but it's got to do something that makes us sit up and go, okay, this is something I need to have my ass in the theater for to watch. Agreed. Anyway, Rob, you have look at the poster. What do you think? And thoughts on this new trailer coming tomorrow? Well, I mean, I guess I, I, I think this movie looks better. I was a little disappointed with the first Shazam, a little bit. I, I've always thought, I mean, I love the Marvel family. Boy, I hope they make toys of all those figures. Um, I, I... I have high hopes for this movie because, look, I thought it was pretty inspired to get Helen Mirren to be the lead antagonist yeah. in this movie, and um, it looked a lot. It looked a lot of fun to me. It looked like more Shazam, more of what I wanted from Shazam. So I'm excited to see more from it. I'm actually excited to see the movie. I want to see it. I think it's going to be good. I think it's going to be. I think they they've made a little bit of course correction. I think they understand that. My only thing was I thought that the the Billy Batson and Shazam, I had a, a kind of, I thought there was a disconnect in the first movie because he was shown as being really smart at the beginning. Billy Batson was. And when he turned into Shazam, Shazam was kind of a goof. I mean, that kid got into a police car and tracked down the name of numbers and was, he but was being pretty smart. I, I still thought the personality was the same. He's still a kid. Yeah, right? No, and he's still a kid, but he was a little bit more cunning and a little bit more worldly, you know, when he was looking for his parents and, figuring out a, a, a deception to get the police to come to go into their car and use it. But that, that's a small thing. I, and uh, Zach, um, he, he's great. Zachary Levi is great as Shazam. Uh, as I can't, I can't say, I keep saying in my mind, it's Captain Marvel, but um, he's great. So I, I can't wait to see these characters again. Cause I like them all. Chris, what do you think about the poster and what are you expecting out of this new trailer tomorrow? 
I really love Shazam. I really loved the first one. And I think this poster is so boring. Um, <laughs> I do like what's over in this little corner here, though, with the dragon. That's what I want more of. And that's what I hope I get more of in the trailer. Watch, there's no dragon in the end. going to be so mad. He already talked about punching a dragon and yeah, stuff. Yeah, but if the dragon's in for is. like five minutes, they probably shouldn't put him too heavy in the yeah, marketing, right? But I love the, the little spooky castle situation that's happening in that back corner. It's a fine poster. It's a very typical poster. I think everything kind of hinges on the trailer. All right, guys. Question is for you. What do you think about the new poster for Shazam 2 Fury of the Gods? And we got a new trailer coming tomorrow. What are you looking for in that trailer? Are you already excited to see the movie? Are you still waiting to be sold on it? What could be in this trailer that might push you over the edge? Whatever you guys think, jump down into the comment section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's now move on to our Mint Mobile hotline question of the day. If you guys have a question for the show and you'd like to hear your voice on our show, go ahead and call our hotline number anytime at 951-268-4259. Leave your question there and uh, there's a chance you might hear it on the show. And today, we got a question with the Academy Award nominations coming out yesterday about maybe the creation of a new Oscar category. Hey, John Crew, this is Dak calling from Texas. Now, just wondering, with the Oscars and all, do you think they should add a category for streaming movies since those don't have as big a budget to win in big categories? Thanks. Love to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot for sending that in, Dax. All right. So there's every once in a while conversations come up about, you know, could we add this category to the Oscars? Could we add this category to the Oscars? Some, I think, are problematic. You know, the idea of adding a category for best stunt, which which is, and the reason it's problematic is not because stunts aren't vitally important to movies, but the Oscar voters have no way of knowing which ones, like how the stunts were done, which ones were, they just can't vote on it. Uh, one that I think they should add, because it's a direct impact on the movie and what we see on screen is casting. I think there should be an award for best casting. Uh, so that one I'd be interested in. But we've heard the last couple of years, sometimes this idea floated about the idea should be there be a completely separate category for best streaming movie. And while I get where the question's coming from, I'm going to say no, there shouldn't be for, for a couple of big reasons. Number one, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of stream movies don't have the same budgets as the theatrical movies. Well, that's not always true. I mean, you look at stuff like The Gray Man, you look at something like uh, Red Notice. You look at something like The Irishman. You look at, I mean, we've been seeing more and more a lot of these movies coming out with 100, 200 plus million dollar budgets, right? So the idea that the streaming movies are small movies and the theatrical movies are big movies, that's not necessarily true. The other is on the other side of the coin, which is, dude, you go, pa go back the last 10, 15 years. There is a lot of like sub $40 million budgeted films that have been nominated for Best Picture. If anything, one of the big criticisms, and I think an, uh, an unfair criticism and a misplaced criticism, but one of the big criticisms the Oscars have faced over the years is that all they do is nominate these smaller movies and stuff like that. I mean, so the idea that theatrically we have all big budget films and streaming wise we don't and the third thing is this is a lot of times these movies get made not knowing where they're going to end up there's a lot of times a movie gets made a producer comes along they make a film and sometimes they have an exact idea about where it's going to go and sometimes they don't 
Sometimes they make their movies. They take them to Sundance or Toronto, try to sell it to a distributor or somebody to pick it up, and maybe it goes to streaming. Maybe it goes to theatrical. So, like, right from the beginning, they don't know what kind of movie. They're just making the best movie they can. But at the end of the day, the fourth, and to me, the biggest reason is this. The Academy Awards, this is why I've always rejected the the stupid-ass idea about, oh, the Oscars have the best popular movie award. Morons. Absolute morons at the Academy, whoever was coming up with that, because of this. The Academy is meant, usually they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong, but whatever. But what they need to be aiming for, at least, is honoring the best. The best can be a $20 million film, can be a $200 million film, and can be a $1 million film. And the Academy shouldn't care about whether it went to streaming, whether it went to theaters, whether the budget was $300 million, whether the budget was $3 million. This is all stuff that the audience shouldn't care about. And I know, I keep hearing people over the years saying, well, they need to nominate more popular films. No, they don't. They need to nominate more popular films when they deserve it. But most of the times they have it. Sometimes they do. We're going to talk about that a little bit later too. So yeah, I got to say, while... It's not the most ludicrous idea. I would personally be against the idea of the Oscars setting up a streaming movie thing for those three, four reasons, I should say myself. Anyway, Chris, there, there's becoming, I mean, the, the idea of the streaming movie is a new identifier that we haven't really had previous in a previous generation. Do you think there's maybe a case to be made for creating an Oscar category for best streaming movie? I don't know if it should be its own category. I think to your point, it should just be about the best films, right? And I do think streaming's taken over Hollywood. This is the new normal. This is how we watch a lot of our content, the majority of our content. Doesn't it in a way level the playing field then because you don't have to have that theatrical release that you pay for? Now, I think most movies should go to theaters. I think we've seen that works really, really well. We saw it with Glass Onion. We've seen how it pays off of having your movie in a theater for a limited amount of time. Yeah, ask but, Paramount if they like their decision to put uh, Top Gun in theaters exactly, or not. Instead of right? straight to streaming, which was their original plan. Nice payoff there. <laughs> but I think for a lot of smaller independent films, this could really, really level the playing field so that a lot of these films that may have gone unnoticed and didn't have the money or the budget to have a wider theatrical release or the theatrical release that's needed to be a contender here could make some really, really interesting films be part of the mix. Now, of course, I, I knew somebody would bring it up and I am seeing people bring it up. Like, remember, there is a theatrical release requirement for Oscar consideration, but... It is such an easy requirement to meet. All you have to do is book one movie theater in L.A. or New York, have at least one week of it showing in that one theater where an audience can pay money to come see it if they want, and you're Oscar eligible. I mean, so, yes, there is a requirement. I hear people saying, but, John, there's a requirement for streaming to play in theaters. Yes, but it's a very, 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 very easy easy tiny inexpensive thing that they have to do nebraska though what a lovely little way to get your film part of the oscar contender exactly that's pretty cool oh i put it on amazon rob i mean we hear a lot every year the ideas about the oscars sometimes the ideas are adding a category is there a case to be made for maybe including best streaming movie at the oscars I don't think so, only because a lot of the movies that we've seen these smaller movies win at the oscars like coda yeah. were independent movies that were acquired by streamers at various film festivals. So these were films that were made to be theatrical or whatever. You can't really... Control. And by the way, just playing at these film festivals often also qualifies your true. film yes. for Oscar consideration. You don't even have to book a movie theater in LA or New well, York. Well, this, this erotic thriller, financial thriller movie called Fair Game 
that I can't with Alden Enreich that has been getting great notices coming out of um, Sundance. Out of Sundance. Yeah, it just got purchased, I think, for $20 million. So that was a film that they didn't have. A lot of people don't understand when, when these lower-budget movies get made, they do not have distributors. You know, it's a business. You make a product, and you hope you get acquired by a bigger fish that will distribute your movie. So a lot of movies that are made, whether it's like a Coda or a Moonlight, I mean, some people, Apple might finance a movie, and that's one thing. But like Chris was saying, does it really matter where you see? I mean, like you said, you got to qualify. I do believe that movies should be seen on a big screen because I think there's something about a film and the effect on the audience. Um, something happens when you're sitting seeing it on a big screen. Heartbreak feels better. <laughs> it's just science. That's true. Um but yeah, so I don't mind that. But like you said, you can put in a qualifying run. You can four-wall it in one theater someplace. But I do think the best movies, regardless of where they play, should be in consideration for the Academy Awards. And we're seeing we're, over the last 20 years, we've seen things shift over, over to streaming. But you know what? And everyone talks about, well, you know, no one's seen these movies yet. Yeah, but they're all going to be seen. Yeah, and that's they're, irrelevant. It's irrelevant it's totally, whether people see it. Absolutely. Is it the best or not? And. You know, if Fair Game does get picked up or did it get picked up by Netflix, I know I'm going to see it. I really want to see Fair Game. I usually have to wait for these little movies to come out on disc, and I just buy them. But I'd love to if Netflix is going to put it out like you knew Glass Onion was going to be be out, and, and you can watch as many times as you want. I just want to be able to see these movies, and more importantly, I want to see these movies get made. All right, guys. Question is for you. What do you think about that? I mean, look, the Oscars always need to evolve and stuff like that. And maybe the addition of new categories should streaming movies be in addition to that. What are your thoughts on for it? What are your thoughts against it? Whatever you guys think, jump down to the comment section below and leave your thoughts there. All right, guys, with that all down, we're going to move on to our main topics here. But before we do, we're going to take a quick second and thank the sponsor of our show. They just did their, we just had their Mint Mobile hotline question. My phone service provider, the good folks over at Mint Mobile. Guys, we want to thank a sponsor of this video, Mint Mobile. If saving more and spending less is one of your top goals for 2023, why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for your phone bill? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save money this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. Guys, I have told you before that when I was on one of the major phone carriers, I was spending literally three times as much every month and switching to Mint Mobile couldn't have been easier. So for people just looking to save some extra money this year, Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for just 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and switch easily in just minutes with eSIM. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash campia. That's mintmobile.com slash campia. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia. And thank you to our friends at Mint Mobile for being an awesome phone service provider and of course for being the main sponsor of the John Campia show. And guys, I, I if if you're not with Mint Mobile, what are you doing? You're spending way too much. I know I was. And by the way, remember, when you guys support our sponsors, you're actually supporting us. So go down into the description of this video right near the top. You'll find links and promo codes to all the sponsors of today's show. And once again, thank you 
to Mint Mobile. Okay, guys, with that down, let's get into our main topics here today, shall we? And how do we select our main topics? Where well, that's where you guys come in because you guys come up with our main topics. Whenever you guys come across a big topic issue or story that you guys feel we absolutely must cover here on the show, go anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's absolutely free. Hit submit, and then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on The John Campia Show. With that down, Chris, what is our first main topic today? Our first topic comes from Nigel. Hey, John and crew. I'm Nigel from Nairobi, Kenya. I've loved your show since way back when. Thank you, man. I just saw an update about the Invincible live-action movie where in an interview, Kirkman stressed that the film adaptation is still in the pipeline and that, quote, we are very much still working on that. After that incredible first season, I'm absolutely excited to learn that this property is still in the works. What are your thoughts? And bring on the filthy. All right, Nigel, thanks a lot for saying that in. And yeah, Invincible season one was a great, pleasant surprise. I mean, I didn't think it was as good as Arcane, but it was it was it became a must-watch every time a new episode is out there kind of thing for me. I really enjoyed it. I, I admit I'm not as looking forward to season two moving forward because like the storyline in the comics... I. I just prefer the invincible story that's on earth and the stuff that goes on there. But Hey, listen, when you look at the job they did for season one, great. We got a little kind of a teaser thing for season two announcement the other day. Mm -hmm. That was, that was fine, but a live action invincible, a live action, not superhero, non DC universe, non Marvel universe. Although there have been crossover stuff, but would be, fantastic and it looks like there was whispers of it before but it sounds like it's a very tangible thing they are very much working towards uh, this comes to us from the folks over at coming soon who write the following creator robert kirkman revealed that a live action movie based on the series is still in development while he didn't delve into too many specifics on the film he did note that the popularity of the television series was only helped when it comes to getting people to take the idea of an invincible film project seriously we're still very much working on that, Kirkman said. Sometimes movies take a little bit longer. I think it's safe to say, if anything, the show has just helped that immensely. People are very excited about that movie potential at Universal, so we're riding that excitement and trying to push things forward as quickly as possible. All right. Lots and lots and lots of story ideas and things being in development happen that never come to the big screen, right? Most things that go into development don't end up on the big screen. But with the unquestioned success of the first season of this, and it wasn't a fluke, it's a really good story. I mean, it's a really oh, fun yeah. show. It's a good story. It carries a lot of the elements that I think a lot of the audience likes to see in it. And, you know, look, we've talked for a long time that studios besides Disney and Warner Brothers have been looking like, how can we get a little taste of this superhero money? That people are making and something like this. I mean, they're saying universal would be, I guess the home for something like this. Now, granted it would be, this would not be a cheap movie to make. No. I mean, we're not talking $300 million, but I mean, this is not a cheap movie to make and it would represent a risk. It would be a non franchise, non cinematic universe, all that kind of stuff. But I'll tell you what, often what I would like to see and what I think would be the smart thing to see are two different things. I think they align here. I would love to see a live action Invincible. I would love it. And you know what? I think it would be the right move. I think they have built an audience with this by this going to TV and streaming first. 
I think they've got awareness of it. It is a much more well-known IP today than it was before the series started to air. And with season two coming out, you can only build on that. Listen, again, you can't make this thing for $200 million, but even though it would be a big budget, I think there's a lot of upside to this. Anyway, Rob, what do you think about this? Well, I think you're absolutely right. The, the thing is that here's the real problem when you're going in to pitch an unknown property of any kind. It's hard for people to visualize what that could possibly yes. be. Yeah. They don't know. So that's why everyone is so focused these days on IP because there's always something to look at, whether it's a novel, whether it's an animated series, whether it's a comic book, something that's tangible that they can look at and go, oh, okay. This already worked in one medium. People already bought it. It exists. So now that I can see what it is, if this meets what our studio or our distribution company is interested in making, it's much easier to get something done. And I think that when looking at the Invincible, the Invincible first season of Invincible was crazy. I mean, it, it showed a, a world that you get it. And it's like, oh, that would that would absolutely work in live action. Let's do that. And you can also get an idea of how expensive would this movie be? There's flying effects. There's superhero battles. There's alien worlds, depending on where you're going to go with it. How much do we have to spend? And having something that you can look at. I mean, I've got the absolute versions of the comics, but it's those comics, even in a larger size, are really dynamic. So you could look at them and go, yes, we can make this. But it's really important. It, I think it raises the bar. If you have an animated series like this, it raises the bar by 100 to 300%, that much that it would get made in live action because people can see what it is. Chris, what do you think? I mean, first, does Invincible, could Invincible work in a live action medium? And what do you think the likelihood is here that they could actually get this done? I mean, it could work. It is a hyper-violent show, obviously, as the comics are. But we've seen that translate well in shows like The Boys, like Preacher, those adaptations did that really, really nicely. Um, having that super hyper-stylized violence because, I mean, people are being ripped apart in this show. The biggest issue for me here is the pacing is going to have to change so much for a feature film yep. than for a television show, which we already saw changes to that in that first initial episode. We have our big reveal, that big turn that takes several issues, which I think worked for a television medium. This is one of those moments where adaptation does need to make some changes because there was delicious payoff and going, oh my God, Omni-Man does what? <laughs> but you needed that for the first episode of this season to be really enticed and drawn in. And boy, what a twist too, to have this squeaky clean, almost Peter Parker-esque saga, then have all that hyper-violence. Everyone I knew who watched it, who didn't know the story, lost their minds. But you really have to play with that timing and pacing for a feature film. And I don't know how much of the story you'll be able to encapsulate there. I think Kirkman could do it. I'm just worried about that. Any chance, I got to throw this off here too, because this would be the other thing that Universal will have to weigh. Any chance that they can come and make a pitch of this where an Invincible live action movie is not rated R? Because I, I don't know that you can. With the expect, if there hadn't been an Invincible show already, you could do an adaptation that wasn't rated R. But now that the expectations have kind of been set, I don't know, can you do this non-rated R? I, I don't think so. But the problem is what people have to understand is if you're going to go rated R and use the graphic violence, and let's face it, that's one of the appeals, that means your budget can't be that high. The higher the budget is the the and, and the, the harder the rating is, your budget has to come down. Because if you look in the history of films, there are lately over the last 20 years, there have been some very um, successful R-rated movies, comedies, certain movies like 
like the Matrix. They are still the rare exception. But though. they're the rare exception. So if you're going to spend, you know, two hundred million dollars on an R-rated movie, they're not going to spend two hundred million dollars on an R-rated movie usually. But if you know it was a seventy-five million or a hundred million, maybe you could. And if you figure out a way to do it, then you could make it R. All right, guys. Question is for you. Do you even watch the Invincible series? If so, what do you think about the idea of a live action version of it? I'm not going to lie to you. I kind of salivate at the idea. I would love to see this thing in live action. Could it be done not rated R? I don't think you can with the show already being out there, kind of setting the expectation level. The the question is, what do you think is going to happen here? Whatever your thoughts are, jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic Number two, shall we? This one makes me happy. Chris, what is our second main topic today? This one comes from Jacob T. So I didn't even know there was a Harley Quinn special coming out, and (laughs) all of a sudden, I'm on YouTube yesterday, and a trailer for it pops up. It looks fantastic. I got turned on to Harley Quinn because of you guys, and I love it. Did you guys see the new trailer for the special? And what do you guys think about it? Do you think they went a little too red band? (laughs) All right, thanks a lot for writing that in. And look, for you guys who watch the show, you know. I love the Harley Quinn show and I liked nothing about it when it was coming out at first. I didn't like the trailers. I thought the concept of it was stupid. Uh, I didn't like the animation style. I was like, nope, this one is clearly not for me. And then I had a whole ton of you guys telling me, John, I think you really need to watch this. I think you're going to like it. I started watching it totally hooked. Been waiting anxiously for season three. And I'll tell you what, I didn't know either that there was a Valentine's Day special. Uh, and what's it actually called? What's the name of it? It's called like the very problematic, problematic Valentine's, Valentine's Day, Day special. special. Harley Quinn, a very problematic holiday special. So and, like, is that the new thing with comic book stuff? We got the Guardians of the Galaxy Christmas holiday special. We got holiday. We got Harley Quinn, a problematic Valentine's Day special. Whatever. The trailer drops. I watched it like six times. I, I laughed my ass off. It's hilarious. And uh, what's the name of that damn demon? Durgan Etrigan Etrigan right Etrigan being there going women are from Mars men are from or men are from Mars women are from Venus let me guess you want a bigger penis and like Bane is like no oh (laughs) Bane by the way one of the greatest characters on television right now but just the line in it like wait a minute you cannot be mad at me for getting you off so good that is not a thing it's like it remind me a little bit of um uh, like that scene that happens reminds me a little bit of uh, why am I freezing on the name of uh, why am I freezing on the name of the show uh, with robot Doom Patrol Doom Patrol thank you that the episode Doom Patrol um, with <laughs> I don't care what anybody says this looks so funny so good it, it, they they have no boundaries like I, I, like they clearly even in the trailer you can see they have no boundaries over there. Like, if you didn't know that, then the Court of Owls orgy episode would totally give that away. They have absolutely no boundaries. They will do and say anything, and they continue to push the envelope. And I thought it looked funny and hilarious, and I can't wait to watch it. Anyway, Chris, did you have a chance to see the trailer for the I did. problematic Valentine's Day special? What yeah. did you think? What a good name for it, first of all. It's great. It was a good reminder, too. I'm so far behind on this show. I'm so far behind on this. Oh, you got to like, get caught I, up. I'm so way back because I've talked about it on the show. Where I'm like, oh, are they going to do fun stuff with the Dr. Freeze or Mr. Freeze? And they've been like, everyone in the chat's been like, 
Chris. Have you not watched it? Chris, you don't know. And I'm like, I don't know. So I have a lot to catch up on. But this is so fun looking. I really, really enjoy all the little gags in there. And having Etrigan in there doing his whole rhyming thing, which is canon, and just making it a penis joke. So good. You know, I've been saying for a while, look, I, by the way, I'm going to throw out a hot take here. So I decided because Anne was like, have you heard anything about this? She She had Velma on, right? So like, all right, I'll sit down and watch a bit of Velma with it. I watched about 20, 25 minutes of it. Rob just watches it on a loop. Yeah. Um, I, but I, I will say this about Velma, and there, I'll, there's a reason I'm bringing this up to talk about Harley Quinn. You'll see in a second. It's not that bad. It's not good. It's not good. But it's not, it's not that bad. A- anyway, but the one thing that really stands out to me is Velma is desperately trying to be Harley Quinn. Like, yeah, like they, they say you're desperately trying to ho- copy Har- Harley Quinn without saying you're desperately trying to copy Harley Quinn. Because that's what that show is. It's absolutely trying to be Harley Quinn. You just don't have the same writers Harley Quinn does because they write it really funny. Anyway, Rob, you had a chance to see this trailer. <laughs> you had a chance to see the trailer for the Valentine's special. What do you think? Well, I think it's it's really, you make a really good point. I mean, like you said, they, they have no boundaries, but they've established this within the world that they've created. All of their body humor has been earned. You know, a show like Velma comes out of the gate, and to me, I thought it was, it's smug in, in terms of its, it just expects you, it expects you, the audience, just to embrace it, uh, its take. And I'm like, don't, you gotta earn my, you gotta earn my respect, man. Don't, whereas the, the, the Harley Quinn show has really, like you pointed out, you were not looking forward to it. It earned your love it, because of the great writing. And when you watch that tra- that trailer, even I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, wait, they didn't actually just do that. I, oh, they I, did. I, I, I'm like, wow. You know, within the context of a DC property, between Peacemaker, Harley Quinn, and some other things James Gunn has done and what other people have done, I'm like, wow, this is really adult fair. But it's really funny. Like the Bane character, dude. God, again, uh, it, one of the best characters on TV right now. I mean, I'm surprised that there aren't groups protesting this show. You can't do this to our beloved comic properties. It's so great. Um, I can't wait. And, and look, a very problematic Valentine's Day special. They know what's up. They know exactly what they're doing. And what's great about it is they're they're doing what I love. When there's authorship and when when the producers and the writers and everybody knows exactly what show they're making and everyone is on the same page and they're making a show that works. You can make you can make whatever kind of show you want, but if you have a creative staff, a team of people that really know what you're doing, and a lot of great animated shows, I think animated shows especially, have to have everybody on the same page. They really know what they're doing over there. And they lean into it and they're giving us I, I, I hesitate to say top-notch entertainment because what does that say about me? You know, I watch this and I'm like, should I take a shower now? That's and look, and I, I'm going to bring you back to this again. I've talked about it with She-Hulk. Talked about the only difference between Velma and Harley Quinn, and you alluded to this, is one succeeds at being funny and one doesn't. The difference between She-Hulk and Harley Quinn is that Harley Quinn is successful at being funny. When you are a comedy, you can get away with everything if you're funny. But if you're a comedy, you can do everything else right. If you ain't funny, 
They don't work. And that that's the big thing to me. Like, obviously, that was the main reason I ended up not liking She-Hulk, because it just wasn't funny. The Velma thing was simply not funny. It was just desperately trying to be Harley Quinn. Harley Quinn is hilarious. It's and, and it makes you laugh. It makes me laugh consistently. Do you know what? Harley Quinn knows its audience. And Harley yeah. Quinn uh, and the writers and the people that make that show know their audience is going to get what what they're selling and put down. The the Velma show. The writers all think they're better than their audience, and it comes through in their writing. And I think it's a very different. I, don't know. I think if that show, if if I just laughed, if I when when the Velma show was on, if I laughed, I would probably think very but, differently about the show. But it didn't make me laugh because everything they're doing, but every line in the Velma show is trying to say, "Look at how clever we are." And the thing is, you can't do that. You have to allow your audience to move along with you. And all the great, especially with animation, all the all the great animation writing assumes the audience is going to go with the show but i would propose i think people would be saying the same thing of harley quinn if the jokes didn't land if the jokes didn't land and they didn't make us laugh again winning cures everything i think no yeah i think but there's a synergy man yeah there's a synergy because they're they're also at the same time are subverting everything we know about comic book characters like it's and part of that is like you can't believe that these characters are going through these situations like let's tell you what the court of owls is really all about oh my god i mean it's <laughs> you know i i think the moment i was enjoying the first episode of harley quinn like when because it starts the show starts off with that boat heist with harley and the joker on the boat right and batman shows up but it was a little bit later either in that episode or episode the moment that i knew i was totally hooked is when joker worms his way into harley's affection again when when Harley and Poison Ivy went there so Harley could just end things with Joker and she jumps into his heart and they start making out with the tongues going and Harley turns to Poison Ivy and says, you might want to leave Ives. Things are about to get really gross. And I'm like, I'm in. Like this, this, like it just, at that point it locked me in and the show has never taken its foot off the gas. Anyway, guys, question is for you. Have you seen the trailer for the Harley Quinn very problematic Valentine's Day special? If so, what did you think? Listen, it, it's not a humor that's for everyone. So maybe it's not for you. It, it totally is for me. I don't know. What do you guys think about it? Jump down to the comments section below and let us know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's get on to main topic number three, shall we? Chris, what is our third main topic today? This one comes from Alex. Greetings and salutations, John and crew. As a longtime Netflix subscriber who has seen a lot of his favorite shows get canceled over the years. So yeah, I just saw that the head of Netflix is saying that Netflix has never canceled a successful show. Um, excuse me? <laughs> I can easily name 10 shows right now that I know a lot of people loved that they suddenly canceled. So what is he talking about? Yeah. So, okay, look, I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, one could be tempted to look at what Stavros just said. I, I remember back during... This is neither a left nor a right thing. Just everybody, left or right, everybody remembers this. I remember back during the, the presidential debate between Hillary Rodham Clinton and Donald Trump. And I remember Hillary Rodham Clinton hit him and during the live debate on television said, you said that climate change was all a hoax created by the Chinese. And to which Donald Trump said uh, famously, wrong. Remember that? <laughs> Only then everybody on the internet went, uh, no, here you go. <laughs> You said this and they brought it up and all that kind of stuff. And with this Netflix thing, you know, having Stavro stamp there say, we have never canceled a successful TV show. Meanwhile, a lot of people are going, 
uh, excuse me? What are you talking about? Well, what he to put on my best Obi-Wan Kenobi, what's he said could be considered true from a certain point of view. Now, this comes to us from the folks over at Yahoo Entertainment who wrote the following. They said this. They said, Net, let's bring up, uh, oh, do we not have a quote graphic? I don't have a quote. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, so uh, Netflix boss, Ted uh, Sarandos, I always mispronounce his Sarandos, last name. Sarandos, that's right. Sarandos, yeah. Ted Sarandos has insisted that the streaming service has never canceled a successful show. Talking to Bloomberg after Netflix canceled a number of popular shows, including 1899, The Bastard Son and Devil Himself, uh, Sandros backed the decision to walk away from these shows. He said, we have never canceled a successful show. A lot of these shows were very well intended, but talked to a very small audience on a very big budget. Uh, Harry and Meghan's series is net. Uh, wait, I lost my spot there. I don't know how that got in there. At any rate, so he's basically saying, yeah, we've never canceled a show. All these shows we canceled just speak to a small audience. Now, again, for a very large budget, for very large budgets. And again, for a lot of people who have watched the Netflix, a lot of Netflix shows that have been canceled over years, and there's been a lot of them going, wait a minute, they canceled this one after two seasons. They canceled, and we loved it, and we loved it, and we loved it, and maybe even viewing numbers were there. It's, you got to understand that the definition of success for the streaming platforms is different from the traditional standard of success for broadcast television norms because with broadcast television it was very very easy you got big viewing numbers big viewing numbers equals sponsorships sponsorships equal money smaller viewing numbers fewer sponsors lower rates on the sponsorships network makes less money it was just that simple it was all about Who's watching and how many people are watching every that's why you never hear this term anymore. Rob's when's the last time either of you guys heard the term the sweeps. Ooh, remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember that? Bunch of you guys. Yep. The fall sweeps and all that kind of stuff. When's the last time we heard it? What's that? 30 rock. 30 rock. Yep. But when's the last time we heard anybody bring it up? Mm -hmm. Because it's different now. Because here's the thing. The success marker for, for streaming shows is not how many people watch it. I know that sounds weird. That sounds antithetical, but it's not real. I mean, obviously, the more viewers, the better, for sure. But whether one person watched a show or a billion people watch a show, it makes the same amount of money for the streamer. Nothing. What matters to streamers is the analytics that they look to for success. The first number being, especially in the terms of Netflix, and we saw Netflix, they laid this out before, is Number of uh, of first viewerships, which means they track one of their most important metrics at Netflix is what is the first thing somebody watched once they activated their account? That is a huge thing for them. That tells them specifically what people were signing up for, all that kind of stuff. And for some shows, you may have every existing member of Netflix watch something, but if it didn't generate new people signing up or new audiences signing up or people weren't going to it immediately... To Netflix, that's a big red flag. They're like, okay, that show's not making us money. And maybe we need to look at something else. So 
I get what he's saying. You can have a, a terrific show. I still don't think he has the right to come out and say, we've never canceled a successful show. Uh, that's debatable. But I think we need to at least see a little bit where he's coming from because, again, with the streaming platforms, their definition of success and the pragmatic applications about what success actually is is a little bit different from our traditional understandings. Anyway, Chris, um, I mean, like everybody, you've had shows you've liked canceled on Netflix. Yeah. What do you think about this statement when the head of Netflix stands up and says, we've never canceled a successful show? It's so weird because I understand what their metric is, but at the same time, every show has been canceled, basically, when you really look at it. Of, I mean, most of those Marvel properties, Glow, One Day at a Time, that was really, really popular. Um, I know that uh, Dark Crystal, Age of Resistance didn't have great numbers overall, but it also did get them prestige. It won awards and it was so good. And I want that back selfishly. Um, Bloodline, hey, Chilling Tales of Sabrina, which wasn't particularly highbrow, that had a huge following. That definitely had eyes on it. So it does seem odd to have them say they've never done this. I think, too, that's the CEO also looking back on some of these decisions saying, no, 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 we've done things on track. We've doing, done things great. I'm sure he also thinks they're marketing their properties very, very well as well. You know, it's hard to to just believe that statement is true. <laughs> <laughs> um, Rob, we've talked about the fact that, you know, over the past couple of years, we've talked about the fact that, you know, once a show like sits, hits season three, that's what we've seen. Remember, there was a long time where it was like that was the magic number that a show would hit three seasons and all of a sudden be gone no matter how popular it was because Netflix basically had the philosophy of everybody who's going to sign up for Netflix to watch that show after three seasons has already done it and the price tag keeps going up to make these shows because the actors want bigger salaries. Understandably so. But still, this, for him to stand up there and say, we've never canceled a successful show, how do you interpret what he's saying? Well, I think, look, the, the thing that I read about last week that I can't stop thinking about is they talked about completion rate on their shows. Right. The viewers who tune in and they said one of their biggest analytics is if 50% of the people who tuned in to start a show, to start a show did not finish it. finish it. So that to me, like 1899, coming from the creators of Dark, big show, a lot of money they put into it. They canceled it after one season. Now, one of the things that I think I, I think Ted Sarandos was not lying, but I think that there's something he didn't take into account. They want these things to be very front-loaded. They're making decisions very quickly about these shows. Uh, Dark was something that I didn't hear about. I'd heard about it. I didn't even watch it till it probably was on Netflix for a year and a half. So I would be curious, does Netflix ever allow, like what is their window of time? Like if we don't get the numbers that we want in the first six months or the first three months, it's gone. Like 1899 was not on Netflix that long before they decided to not renew it. It was a really interesting, very handsome show that I think over time might have gained an audience. But it didn't in their limited time frame. And I'm thinking, my God, unless you have like a global phenom like Squid Game, well, if you've put a lot of money into a show, I would think that they would spend – I think the problem with Netflix is 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 – we don't know, like we don't know what Netflix wants our their eyeballs on. Like, look, Bling Empire New York, come on, I'll watch that. But that, that didn't cost as much money as Dark or eighteen ninety nine did. So how how long before they make that decision? This completion rate, because if people, first of all, people don't even know that the shows are there, much less have the word of mouth to hear that they are there, like from their friends. Squid Game 
took off pretty quickly, but it started out and then it had a big ramp up and it became, but how long, what if it, what if it took six months? But it would, that's the problem though. The Netflix model, that doesn't happen. I know. Right. Because, because they have this drop everything at once philosophy right now. I know it, they, their stats show them. Cause you've, po you've pointed this out too, that if something doesn't catch on immediately, it never will. It's, it, it's, it's frustrating. It is, it is frustrating. I think that's where they should. I mean, to me is if you've invested money, to make a show tens of millions of dollars you need to nurture that show and i feel that netflix i mean they just throw this stuff out there and just assume that people are going to find it i mean i'm joking about bling empire new york it, it is a show that's on but it, it but 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 i'm not kidding about you turn on netflix and i i do look at the number one in america or around the world or whatever but how do you find stuff I mean, everything's the same. Everything is, it's, it's, now it's just this melange of whatever. I, I, don't, I don't even know. And I, it's, they, I think they need to change their analytics, but maybe not. Anyway, guys, question is for you. The head of Netflix is saying they've never canceled a successful show. And, you know, again, Obi-Wan's from a certain point of view, I see what he's saying, but it's probably going to rub some Netflix fans who've had their favorite shows canceled a little bit the wrong way. I know whatever you guys think about this, jump down to the comment section below and leave your thoughts there. All right. With that down, let's move on to main topic. Number four, Chris, what's our fourth main topic today? Our fourth topic comes from Alan Valley. On an interview with Deadline, Steven Spielberg said we should be celebrating the Oscar nominating Oscars, nominating two crowd pleasing features for this year's best picture. He also said this unfortunately came too late for The Dark Knight, a movie he thinks would have easily been nominated in today's landscape. Do you agree with his comments? And do you think The Dark Knight would stand a better chance at winning with the current body of Oscar voters? All right, Alan, thanks a lot for sending that in. And yeah, so Steven Spielberg was asked the other day directly about, you know, what do you think about like the big crowd pleasers like Avatar The Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick being nominated? Anyway, this comes to us from the folks uh, over at Joe Blow who wrote the following. Spielberg is encouraged after the Academy recognized big audience pleading, pleasing films for Best Picture as Avatar The Way of Water and Top Gun Maverick received nominations. However, the Fableman's director feels that The Dark Knight should have gotten its due. When asked about the recent nominations for big blockbusters, Spielberg responded, I'm really encouraged by that. It came late for the film that should have been nominated a number of years ago, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. That movie would have definitely garnered a Best Picture nomination today. So having these two blockbusters solidify pres uh, presented on the top 10 list uh, is something we should all be celebrating. And that, of course, is Steven Spielberg, the greatest filmmaker of all time. All right. I'm glad he brought that up because it raises two issues. One the changing nature of the Academy. We, we've talked about this a little bit over the last couple of years that the Academy itself is now different. I mean, they have constantly over the past 10 years or so been bringing in new members, younger blood. They've been changing up. I mean, and it's a 7,000 voting member body might even be 8,000 voting members now, but it has changed. I mean, it's different as older people have retired out of it or literally died off. Younger blood's been coming in. There's a little bit of a different perspective in there now. Great. I would also say this about Steven Spielberg's thing. The big difference between when The Dark Knight was nominated and today. Now, first of all, Steven Spielberg says today The Dark Knight would have been nominated for Best Picture. Oh, he's absolutely right. It's a, Actually, it's provable. Because 
The year that The Dark Knight came out, that year of the Oscars, was the final year that the Oscars had a limit of five films that could be nominated for Best Picture. And we've seen reports that have come out that said, even that year, The Dark Knight was sixth. So just that alone, if The Dark Knight had come out any year after that one year that limited it to just five nominees, as the film that came in sixth, it would have been nominated for Best Picture. I I can't help but wonder if they still had that limitation of five films. Would Top Gun have still gotten a nomination for Best Picture this year? Would Avatar The Way of Water still gotten a Best Picture nomination this year? Would Everything Everywhere All Once still have gotten a Best Picture? I mean, we simply won't know because there are 10 nominees. So I think he's right on both counts. On the count that today's Academy is a little bit different than the Academy was 15 years ago. So they're more prone. Look, we just saw... uh, you know, uh, we've got an Oscar now. First Marvel acting nomination came through. We saw a screenplay. That's one of the major Oscars. We saw a screenplay Academy Award nomination for Logan. We had a Best Picture nomination for for uh, Black Panther, a Best Picture nomination for Joker, a Best Lead Actor win for Joker. I mean, so it's a different thing today, but also, yeah, the Batman had come out today. It still would have been nominated anyway, even without a different Academy, because it was sixth anyway back then. Anyway, Rob, you hear Steven Spielberg's comments. What do you to make of them? Well, I think, you know, he's correct. Unfortunately, the the world of the Academy Awards has changed because it used to be that for the most part, the movies that were nominated were big studio pictures that were both crowd pleasing and resonant. Like I remember going to see Gandhi in the early 80s, and I dreaded it, but I would see everything, and I'm like, ugh, Gandhi, historical biopic, you know, and I went with my friend Mike. Dude, I was riveted. I saw Gandhi, I'm like, this is incredible. You know what? That movie holds up every bit today as it did back then. It's amazing. It was incredible, you know, and I'm watching this film, and I'm like, this is a transportive movie, incredible Ben Kingsley performance. I, as a, I, I think I was in junior, I was 83 maybe, high school, whatever, junior high, I watched this movie and I was as every bit as entertained as I would be by my favorite Marvel movie. And it deserved to win. And we used to get those kinds of entertainments. Things have changed. The studios have to market now on a global scale. They have to make movies that don't just make money in America. Look at Avatar The Way of Water. If you want to understand the economics of the film business, Avatar Way of Water has made $1.5 billion overseas. That's a huge number. That's a big... That's what studios have to do. So they have to appeal now on a large, larger budgets to a global audience. So by definition, studios can't make Gandhi anymore. I mean, they could, but they're not going to make the kind of money they need to make. So the, the business. I'm curious changed. to find out what this has to do with Batman or the Dark Knight. <laughs> because, well, because Star Trek, John. So <laughs> No, the, po- the point is, the point is, is now there is a schism. There's a schism between studios, <laughs> studio-made movies, they're crowd-pleasers, like your Dark Knights, like your, your Top Guns, like your Avatar The Way of Waters. Those aren't best pictures. But now they're getting nominated, but they're never going to win because they're not what the Academy is looking to honor when it comes to the Academy Awards. And I think that it used to be that movies used to be both. They used to be these important universal stories that were also rousing entertainments. But now the spectacle has lost the import 
of a movie like Gandhi or a movie like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest or a movie like Amadeus. You know, these, can you imagine seeing studios put out these kinds of movies? Nowadays, they wouldn't do it. So now we have these small little indie movies and we have these big crowd pleasers. We don't have the meeting of the minds that we used to get. I don't know that that's exactly true. I mean, I think even if you go through the Best Picture nominee list this year, you find a number of them that are not exactly. But who under- made them? Like I'm saying that from the studios, you look at the, the like everything everywhere all at once. That was A24. Yes. Not a big studio. Then you have. Um, uh, Triangle uh, of Sadness. Triangle of Sadness. Banshees of Inishirin. These are all smaller movies made by smaller production but houses. But some of the production houses owned by the bigger studios too. They are, right? but, I mean, but so the financing sources and but the studios aren't you don't see Warner Brothers, you don't see uh 20th Century Fox, you don't see Sony. They're not releasing you, they would never release. But, but the end result is still the end result. Like you do still get today a lot of those middled movies and, that, and that are of, getting recognized. No one saw Meet the Fablemans. It did not make money. Right. Banshees of Inishirin didn't but what does that have to do with the Academy? Because, well, what I'm saying is that it used to be the kinds of movies, Steven Spielberg himself is talking about these great crowd-pleasing movies. We used to get great crowd-pleasing movies used to also be Academy Award winners. It, that doesn't happen very much anymore, if at all. Again, I, I think you look... Because look, look at what has won lately. Moonlight, Coda. I mean, these are all little, they're fine films but they're not giant box office successes that become part of the culture. Whereas you look at other, Amadeus was a huge movie. Gandhi was a huge movie. The, I mean, they didn't make the kind of money that movies are making now, but they were still the biggest movies of the year. Forrest Gump, crowd-pleasing movie that also had something to say. That was, I mean, that was like the last movie I can think of that was both. Yeah, but... Remember, too, every, the fact that there's 10 nominees means every film that gets nominated literally only has a 10% chance of winning. At best, a 10% chance of winning. But they only, like, they only did that so they could get the crowd-pleasing movies in. I, so okay, could, see, now, now that's where we get to the heart of it. You are ascribing an ulterior motive when no, such, no evidence of that exists. Then why are there not 10 nominees in any other category? No, listen, they, made, they said straight up from the beginning that we want, we think more when they move to 10, which, by the way, I wasn't for the move to 10, but I understand their reasoning. Their reasoning was the the ultimate award. We think more films should be honored. So they started putting more of them in. But you are still seeing every year, like big crowd-pleasing films. Like even Quentin Tarantino has had, like with uh, with Django and stuff like that. We're seeing, we're seeing films like Joaquin Phoenix for a comic book movie winning one of the biggest awards of the Academy. He, uh, he like won an, uh, an acting award, which he should. But this one of the, that's that's like the second or third biggest award to be given out at the Academy Awards. Right. So this 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 notion that I I just disagree because your notion starts with an assumption with a baseless assumption. It's not assumption baseless that there's no there's no root in fact there's no root in evidence that this like you and I know voting. Okay, members let of the me Academy. ask you this: You would let's correlate, and I don't know the answer. This I don't know if you could find this out. Correlate box office since they added ten Academy ten films to the best picture right correlate the box office of the academy award winning films of those years when we had 10 to the biggest box office earners of that year and is there any correlation has any academy award film been the number one box office grocer of that year and i i don't even know the answer but it's a false equivalent like how much a movie makes has nothing to do with the quality of the film but but here's the thing so you're saying though if it makes money that's 
something for them to exclude it from the Academy no, Award? No, what I'm saying is Then that why are you trying to draw an equivalency? Because a movie like The Dark Knight was never going to win Best Picture ever because the kind of movie it is. And, the, and yet it literally was the sixth film on the list to get a Best Picture nomination. Oh, I understand, but it didn't get that best. When there but was 10 Lord movies... Lord of the Rings Return of the King did. Yeah, but and that's, it won. That's, and that's, that's an exception. Coming off, I mean, Lord of the Rings was not... And that was 20 years ago. And the Batman, the Dark Knight was what? Fifth, but the oh Dark God, Knight wasn't nominated years ago? for Best Picture. No, but it had the rules of 10 been at the time. It would have been. It right. was the sixth would film in line. Won? The question that Every I'm saying... Every film gets nominated has less than a 10% chance of winning. But that isn't true. They it is true. It's a hundred. That's the math. No, no. Hang on a second. But the thing is, not all of those movies have an equal opportunity of winning Best Picture. The the movies that the come out, the best films do. There's like one or two or three that are the favorites, right? Because they're the best films. It has nothing to do with their box office. I understand office. that. But even the, of the five, two of those movies were never going to win Best Picture ever. But that's the same in every category. I know. Always. That's right. But it there's has nothing always... to do with the box office of the film. But but okay. It didn't used to, but it does now. No, it doesn't. Show me, show me verifiable data. I, I, that I says, will get that for you. I will. Add, that verifiable data exists. You can go out and get it. It doesn't exist. It does because it'll show you. I'm saying correlate the winners of the box off. Correlate the winners of the Academy Awards over the last ten years. But it's a false equivalency because the amount of money a movie makes has nothing to do with its quality. See, I, if, I'm if not. By, that, wait yes, a you are. No, by I'm saying no. by saying that draw a line. Look at the number of the. Number one movie of the year versus what wins at the Oscar, as if there's some sort of correlation okay, there. What there I'm isn't. saying is, okay, look, the kind... we need to stop and move on. We right. need to stop and move but on. But you're missing my point. No, I, I... the point okay, is, okay, give, in 30 seconds, what's your point? The kind of movie the Academy votes for to win the Academy Award is not the kind of movie that The Dark Knight is. It's not the kind of movie that Avengers Infinity War is. They're different kinds of movies. They're looking for movies that are great movies that also have something to say about the human condition. Universal truths. Movies that can be looked at as being important. The Dark Knight is not one of those movies. But it's not because it's a comic book movie. Like we, mm, Yeah, it kind of is. No, it's not because you've talked about genre films that do sometimes very rarely incorporate that. And when it does, like Joker, it gets a Best Picture Award uh, nomination. It gets, it wins the Joker, award for Best Actor. Joker is closer to an Academy Award And it's award a billion dollar movie. film. It is, but it's the, the subject matter of Joker is about mental health issues. All right, and the we, we, need, we need to move on. All we right. need to move on. I feel like the cool takeaway here is that we have a director who is, you know, pretty much seen as the GOAT, not dogging on a genre film. Yeah. I that's think that's true. the really that's cool exactly thing here. Right. I think that's awesome that Spielberg is like, you know what's really friggin' great? The Dark Knight. It's really refreshing to see a director not shit on a film because it's a comic book film. I really like that. I just thought I'd get my point in real quick. You, a, you couldn't do that earlier? Huh? Like I, I 15 minutes here. earlier? I been hanging out. <laughs> All right. Let's move on now to main topic number five. What is the fifth main topic today? This topic comes from Jerry Jolly. NPR is reporting that Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland is being dropped by Adult Swim due to domestic abuse charges being filed against him. Shouldn't he have his day in court before losing such a lucrative partnership? Are we not innocent until proven guilty? I'd love to hear your point of view. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in. And this is unfortunately like one of these horrible, horrible stories that you got to cover. But this is having an immediate direct impact on the entertainment that people watch. Um, Good entertainment. And that, that a lot of people love that is having a direct impact on it right now, where it has been reported now that uh what's it called uh the uh, cartoon 
Cartoon adult Network swim. or Adult Swim? Adult Swim, thank you. Mm-hmm. Adult Swim has parted ways and is no longer going to be working with uh, Rick and Morty Cork co-creator and the starring voice of both Rick and Morty, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justin uh, Roiland uh, has been uh, removed from Rick and Morty. This comes to us from the folks over at The Hollywood Reporter who said the following. On January 12th, NBC News was the first to break on the news that uh, Royland was charged with one count of domestic battery with corporal injury and one count of false imprisonment by menace, violence, fraud or deceit in Orange County based on alleged 2020 incident with an unnamed Jane Doe as Royland that Royland was dating at the time. Royland has pled not guilty and in 2020 was released on $50,000 bond. Several uh, pre-trial uh, several pre-trial hearings have already occurred, uh, the Roy- and Royland is expected to return to court on April 27th. This is, again, coming to us from The Hollywood Reporter. Okay. Like most situations that come up that are like this, there. let's first all acknowledge that you don't know shit about this, and neither do I, right? We were not there. We haven't seen anything. Anybody that comes to you and says, I know he did this or I know he didn't is effing lying. Just let's just all acknowledge right now that we are all going on a very, very finite number of facts that we actually know. Okay, so let's just all acknowledge that right up front and let's now deal with what we do know. All right. So in 2020, an incident happened to which the police got involved and stuff like that. And Royland uh, got arrested, released on $50,000 bond. And now, two and a half years later. Uh, he has now been charged with uh, domestic battery and with false imprisonment. And as a result, uh, Adult Swim have decided to part ways with them. Now, I've seen three comparisons being made online that I, I think we need to address uh, right here, right now. So let's, let's go over to the, to the classroom for a second. The first thing I see a lot of people bringing up is Ezra Miller. Right. I had I've had a lot of people writing to me today. Wonder why. Why would they do that? Yeah. Saying, <laughs> I don't get it. How come they don't fire Ezra Miller, but they fire fire this guy? All right. If you see anybody saying this, can you please correct them? Um, Ezra is not shooting more stuff for DC. Make no mistake, Ezra is out as Flash. All right. Make no mistake about that. You're never going to see Ezra Miller play Flash again. Now, obviously, they're not going to come out and say that right now because they got a movie to release. They're going to release this movie. Some time is going to pass after the movie's released. And then they're going to announce due to scheduling conflicts, uh, we've gotten a new actor to play Flash or whatever. Ezra's never going to be Flash again. But the key thing here is Ezra shot the movie and the movie was basically done and made by the time all this stuff about Ezra came up with the Royland situation. This is an ongoing thing. They're only, I think, halfway through making season seven right now. They got to make seasons eight, nine, and 10. So this is an ongoing thing. The long and the short of it is this, is that this is not comparable to the Ezra Miller situation. This, This is a totally different ball of wax, a horse of a completely different color. This is comparing apples to spaceships. They're two totally different things. Also, the other thing we're seeing coming around a lot is the comparison, um, to Depp, right? The comparison to Depp. A bunch of people will say, well, you know, this is just like the Johnny Depp situation where maybe 
Warner Brothers, you know, moved too quickly to separate themselves from. Of course, one court in England said Depp did what he did. One court in the United States say he didn't. The fact of the matter is, whatever, a lot of people are drawing comparisons. However, there is a major significant difference between the Johnny Depp situation and this situation, which makes it night and day. And that's 2.5 years. What do you mean 2.5 years? Well, I mean this, that the incident happened in 2020. In that time, the police and prosecutors have had two and a half years to investigate it, look into it, evaluate the evidence, evaluate the evidence that we don't have and I haven't seen and I can't make any judgment calls on at all. But I'm saying they had a process of two and a half years to go through this. And only now, after going through that process, have they decided to actually bring charges. And now he is officially charged. That's a very different thing from what the Johnny Depp situation was, which, by the way, no charges were ever filed against Johnny Depp. Like even the court in uh, England that said he did it, that wasn't charges being brought against Johnny Depp. That was a Johnny Depp lawsuit that he was bringing. That was a totally separate thing. This is very, very different Mm -hmm. in in the fact that charges have been brought after the district attorney and the police have had an ample amount of time to evaluate and look at the evidence. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be found guilty. Let's be very clear about that. I don't mean he's going to be found guilty, but it makes it fundamentally a different situation than what the depth situation was. All right. There's the third thing that I I hear a lot of people uh, talking about, which is exactly what you just said. What about uh, uh, innocent until proven guilty? What about innocent until proven guilty? Huh? Well, we do live in a society where you are innocent until proven guilty. That's why he's not in jail. That's why he's not in jail. But you're talking about what the government will do to you, not about how people react. Innocent until proven guilty is not about how people, is not about, it's about prison. It's not about how people react. And we are a system based on innocent until proven guilty, which is why he's not in prison. However, um, business. If you're Adult Swim and you have somebody now that is particularly in the position that he's in, has now after a two and a half year investigation, you've had an attorney general and you've, you've had the department and you've had police now actually officially bring and file charges against you. How do you talk to your employees if you continue to work with that person right now? Now, look, that sucks. Because what happens if this trial happens and ultimately they find him innocent? Well, then at that point, they're, they're going to have to do something to try to mend fences, I guess. But if you're an employer, look, even in here in a small operation like the John Campia show, let's say for the longest time I had, a, I don't know, a guy named Phil. All right. Let's say a guy named Phil has been working with us forever. And he's worked with us for, for the last three and a half years. We all know Phil. We like Phil. But we found out that after investigating police charged him with child abuse or hitting a kid or, or, or whatever, right? I have a responsibility to the other people who work for me in this office to remove that situation from our work environment. I mean, it sucks for Oiland. It really does, but it's not adult swims problem. 
Royland, what's the issues going on in Royland's life are not Adult Swim's problems. They have to deal with their problems. And their problems, if they have somebody who has actually been charged with domestic battery working in their company, and you expect female employees and, and other people to just be cool working with that guy for the next two and a half years until the trial ever and happens. False imprisonment? And, and charges of false imprisonment. I, I'm like, I'm sorry, but from a business point of view, this is business. From a business point of view, you can't do it. Now, this isn't um, Adult Swim saying, well, he's guilty. It's not about that. Whether you're guilty or innocent, that's your issue between you and the police. And that that has nothing. to. If, if I'm Adult Swim, I'm saying that has nothing to do with me. What does have to do with me is I can't have the head of this show and the lead of this show and I can't communicate to the rest of our staff and the people who work here and the creative people who work here say, hey, we're going to have this person who's actually been charged with domestic battery continue to work and make our shows. You can't do that. It's not. And guess what? To everybody who protests to that, you wouldn't do it either. If the food that you're able to put in on the table for your family and your children was based on the fact that you're going to lose that ability or lose some of it, because guess what? You would make the same thing because it's a business decision, has nothing to do with you, but we just can't do it. So I think all three of these comparisons are thin, at least. Trying to compare it to the Ezra situation is completely nonsense. I mean, there's no there's no comparison between the two situations. Again, the comparison between the depth situation is this. There's so many fundamental things that are so completely opposite of the depth situation. Though what about innocent and two proven guilty? Of course, but that's about whether he faces jail time and he's not in jail. If you're a business, listen, you just can't do it. And again, going back to the illustration of Phil, Phil worked in the office here and he got charged with child abuse or, or some, some terrible charge like that. And I had to remove him from our work environment. Listen, if he goes through it and gets found innocent, then I'm going to have to reach out and say, hey, man, I, I'm glad you were found innocent. I'm glad you were released. I'm sorry things had to work out the way they did with us, but I had my business I had to take care of. It's easy to say something and have an opinion about something when it costs you nothing to have that opinion. It's different when you're actually in the situation and having to deal with it. Um, I know, Chris, we hear about the now. Look, I, full disclosure, I'm not a Ricky Morty viewer. I watched season one. It wasn't for me. You know, it just it just didn't work for me the way it works for everybody else. So I'm not invested in this as a lot of people are. And again, if if this dude's innocent of all this, I'm going to feel terrible. Like, absolutely, we should feel terrible for him if he goes through the trial and he gets found innocent or whatever. He's probably going to accept a plea deal at some point. But I know you're hearing about this situation. What stands out to you? Well, there's a couple updates, too. Right when we were getting ready to start this show, um, The Hollywood Reporter dropped that he has um, stepped down from his company, Squanch Games. Uh, it's a video game company that he started back, I believe, in 2016 with Epic Games, some of the people from that. So he's no longer part of that. Hulu has also dropped him at this point from Solar Opposites as well as Qualia. Yeah, they were expecting that to um, happen. So a lot of these things have happened. He's due back in court April 27th, and that is when we will theoretically know some more things. We'll actually have a bit more information. I believe that that's when the pre-trial begins. And really, until we have more facts about this case, it's really hard to weigh in on stuff. Obviously, these allegations are atrocious and very, very troubling. Uh, this is also some other things have come to light around this, um, which typically happens once somebody is convicted of one thing. We start hearing stories about other things. Other allegations pop up. Um, hopefully, everything gets settled properly and... It's it's a shame when so many other people, too, are connected to a creator 
because it does affect other people's livelihoods so much, totally. which I can see that thread as something people have taught, th talked about with some of the other Warner Brothers connections here about how one person's actions can affect, you know, production of major shows, really affect people who are on other teams who have no control over any of these things one way or another. So I'm really hoping, too, that everyone who's involved in these shows, that they still get to continue working. Um, and I really hope that all parties involved get their fair day in court. Rob, this... There's no pretty way to paint the scenario because if he did the stuff he's being charged with, that's horrible. If he didn't do the stuff he's being charged with, that's horrible. But what your adult swim, what what should or should not adult swim do here? What's the approach? I think you're absolutely right. There's you have to err on the side of caution. You know, you're running a business that has what would that do to the morale of the other people that have to make this show? You have to they have they have contracts. They have to deliver multiple seasons of this by the way he's still going to get paid because he has a contract unless there's some kind of force majeure moral clause but i'm sure not because Rick there will Morton, probably be a with cause clause yeah, yeah in there there'll somewhere. be something but it's been around for a long time who knows so i think he's going to be okay but either way you a, a business has to make sure that their employees are taken care of first and foremost it's like when you're on a movie set safety is paramount of your crew all kinds of safety. That's why you have to have insurance. That's why you can't go. When something like this happens, the studio is forced to act a certain way. And the studios acted accordingly. And it sounds like by he himself stepping down, he's acted accordingly as well. He yeah. hasn't acted defiant and said, you can't do this to me. He's, he's taken the necessary steps and the studio has taken the necessary steps. And now you have to let the legal apparatus run its course. That's how our legal system works. All right. So let's go from that. And again, let, let's say it again. This sucks all the way around. If he did it, it sucks. If he didn't do it, it sucks. It's a horrible situation for everybody. Let's get to the creative a little bit. While this is not necessary, again, I watched the full first season, not for me, so I didn't watch the rest of it. But this is a popular show. Mm -hmm. And not only is this guy the co-creator along with Dan Harmon, not only is he co-creator of the show, but he is the voice of Rick and Morty. He's, he's the lead voice of both of them. So as somebody who's not a Rick and Morty fan myself, I can't really speak to this. But Chris, like how off-putting or not is it going to be for the audience who have watched Rick and Morty for years to all of a sudden have different voices. Do I don't know. Is this going to be a big deal for them as a show or, or not? What do you think? Well, there's something in voiceover called a sound alike. You'll hear this with a lot of celebrities, actually. Um, this is the one of the ways that Eric Bauza kind of got his start before he was doing all the Looney Tunes characters was he would do Antonio Banderas' voice or Paul Giamatti's or things like that. So you have a lot of actors who specialize in be doing these really killer impressions. Um, and the key to that is not being able to just say catchphrases, but say anything in that voice. If you think you've got a great goofy, you need to be able to do Samuel L. Jackson's uh, monologue from Pulp Fiction as Goofy. That's kind of the way this works. You need to be able to say anything as that character. Lots of people are able to imp uh, do an impression of this voice. There is something always jarring when you do change. It's why a lot of times, you know, you hear the Muppets and you go, that's not my Kermit. That's weird. <laughs> but you adapt over time. You know, you get used to it. Change is always jarring to any of us, but if it's a change for the better. We'll get on board. When you said that, I just thought of that one family guy cutaway scene it's like when they got different voices for the muppets and fozzy comes on it's just walka walka, walka. walka. <laughs> it's like yeah, like uh, but but rob i mean getting to the show itself this this is a show has a lot of fans that have been watching this show for years 
And now it's not just one of them. It's the two main voices. And I think he does a couple of the other voices in the show mm-hmm. that aren't as important. But do you think that in and of itself is going to have an impact? I, I think it could. But here's the thing. Again, you go back to character and story. I think that if they find there's a lot of talented voiceover artists out there. And if they figure if they find some people, maybe not the same person, they might have to cast two different actors. I think if this if the writing stays up to par, I think the show will survive. Yeah. It'll survive this. But again, it comes down to the writing and the characters as always. But yeah, it's going to be a transitional period. But I'll bet you they'll even write this in canonically to the show. They'll do something that accounts for this. Yeah. Morty will like hit puberty or go through a growth spurt. Yeah, something some, like that. Something's going to happen. Rick will sober up for a little while. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I, And then people will be like, they won't even notice. All right, guys. Look, again, it's all the way around. It's a terrible situation for uh, for. The, the victims involved for him if he didn't do it for the for the people who just enjoy watching the show now have this big stigma drama attached to it now i don't know it's a terrible thing all the way around what do you guys think about this and the moves that have been made what do you think they should have done shouldn't have done whatever you guys think jump down to the comment section below and let us know your thoughts All right, guys, Uh, listen, at this point, we were going to go over to take your live comments and questions. However, we've gone over time, more over time than we normally do, and we'd only be able to get in a few questions. So instead of doing that, we are just going to call it for today. Guys, thank you so much for being here and making this show part of your day. Don't forget, a little bit later this afternoon, we've got the newest issue of The Weekly Hero with Rob and Chris. Make sure you guys come back and join us for that as well. And as always, guys, make sure you come back and join us for the next episode of The John Campia Show tomorrow. So for everybody in the room, guys, Robert Meyer Burnett, Ray Orr back there, Taylor Jonathan, and of course, Chris Carr. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.